from R.D. Smothers Wealth Management, this is the retirement. When you retire, if you want an exciting life, you need a boring investment strategy. Matters. Listen, I'm not saying you've got to work with a fiduciary, but if you don't, you will pay for it. Podcast. Hey, this is your host, Dale Smothers, and you're listening to the Retirement Matters Podcast. My hope is that you will find the information you need in every single show on how to do one of the three things, either saving more money more efficiently, planning better for your future where you can live in retirement worry-free, or my favorite, how you can live a happy and fulfilled life in this life you have been given. We know that your time is valuable and we appreciate you spending it listening to this episode of the Retirement Matters Podcast. On today's podcast, we will be sitting down with Dr. Wade Fowle, the Program Director of the Retirement Income Certified Professional Designation and Professor of Retirement Income at the American College of Financial Services. Dr. Fowle is very well known in this community of retirement planning. And anyone who is anyone has read a little bit about the research of Dr. Fowle. Dr. Fowle has shaped the way that we have thought about the academics of retirement planning. While Dr. Fowle is responsible for shaping the way that financial advisors discuss retirement planning, he has also made it his personal mission to be sure that Each individual has the information they need on how to build their own very unique retirement plan. As the principal and director for McLean Asset Management, Dr. Fowle has dedicated his time and resources to not only educate advisors, which in turn educate the investor, he has made it in a handbook to where the investor can pick it up and do it by themselves if they choose. While Dr. Fowle's background is very extensive, I think it's notable to mention that he has his doctorate degree in economics from Princeton University and has published more than 60 peer-reviewed research articles in a wide variety of academic and practitioner journals. As you will quickly realize, Dr. Fowle knows what he is talking about, and I have really enjoyed all the conversations that I've had with him. I had the honor to be a student of Dr. Fowle in my own academic research early in my career as I began to undergo my retirement income certified professional designation. And let me tell you, Dr. Fowle is one of a kind when it comes to academics, research, and being able to relate those to the everyday investor. He's not salesy. He's not pushy. He is in no way trying to market his research. He's just laying out the facts and letting you do what you want to do with him. And that is impressive. Dr. Fowle hosts the Retirement Researcher website where you can log in and actually see a lot of his publications for your own consumption. He is a contributor to Forbes, Advisor's Perspective, Journal of Financial Planning, and is an expert panelist for the Wall Street Journal. Wade is the author of many books, his most recent being the Retirement Planning Guidebook, Navigating the Important Decisions for Retirement Success. And that is what we will take a deep dive on today. While this book is very extensive and I urge you to pick one up, I do want you to realize that this book has so much information, it was impossible for us to cover it in the amount of time we had to dedicate to this podcast. So you will see that we dive into a few chapters while doing a high-level overview of the others, but you're not going to be disappointed. I would urge you to pick up this book, read this book for yourself, and then get Wade's perspective on why and how he wrote this book on this show. I think you're going to like the way that Wade discusses retirement planning as a philosophy. First, you have to know where you are to figure out where you want to be. And while I don't recommend that you skip all the way to the end, be sure you tune in to the very end where Wade discusses his own personal opinion on how he would be investing if he were up for retirement today. You're not going to want to miss that from someone as knowledgeable in this field as Dr. Fowle. I am really excited for you to hear what Dr. Fowle has to say in this podcast, but be sure you pay attention to the back half of this podcast to figure out how you can get your very own copy of the Retirement Planning Guidebook. And if you're lucky enough, we may just send you one for free. So without further ado, let's jump into today's discussion with Dr. Wade Fowle. Wade, how are you, sir? I'm good. How are you? It's good to be I, back on the show. Yeah, so 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 happy to have you, Dr. Fowle. Uh, think the world of you. I was privileged to study under you in the RICP program and have read a lot of your research. You are 
a wizard when it comes to crunching numbers and 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 well respected across the entire financial planning planning industry probably one of the most respected professionals in our time and so i'm so honored to have you here for our listeners to hear uh, you have got a pretty big following yourself and and we just hope that somebody can get some value from our discussion here and at the end of it all i hope somebody runs out and buys your book it is the retirement planning guide and I'm going to be honest with you, it's probably one of the most exhaustive um, guides, if you will, of, of all the retirement planning books I've read. We're working on a book that we're calling Save Money, Plan Well, Live Happy. And we hope that someone can pick that up no matter where they are along the journey and be able to say, if you're 30 years out, these are some things you need to do. If you're 20 years out, 15 years out, five years out. I think yours focuses mostly on that five year or closer number. I mean, am I right on that? Is that kind of what this was right. written for five yeah, years or out? Mm -hmm. And man, it is just a deep dive. I mean, imagine taking your, your GPS of the world and just zooming in on the street that you're on and it shows every pothole, uh, every crevice in the road. It's amazing. So it is worth your read. If you do not have this book, you need to run out and grab it. And, and before this talk, I was going to grab it. And so I could hold it up and show you uh, but before we get done, I'll pull it up on the screen and um, <laughs> hey, there it is. Perfect. It is. Perfect. Yeah. So so there it is. And, and I should have had one. I, it's in the conference room. But yeah, it is a I'll be honest with you. It's a blueprint. That's exactly what it is. And we uh, believe it or not, our retirement process is called the Atlas. And we believe in road mapping. And, and I'm telling you, this is one of. This is one of the best roadmaps we've seen. So tell us a little bit about what you got going on. Last time we saw one another, we was right in the height of COVID. I think we were just entering into COVID and it was starting to get scary. Uh, so tell us a little bit what's went on in your world for the last couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. So writing the retirement planning guidebook was really kind of, it was a 10 year long process, but it really then became my COVID project to yeah. finalize it. And I did try to make it as comprehensive as possible in terms of going through everything people need to think about in that transition into retirement and then throughout retirement, not just the financial considerations, but non-financial and everything that goes into a, a complete retirement plan. Uh, and beyond that, that was just, that was a major <laughs> thing to get finished. Uh, the other big project, and I think we'll talk more about that as well, is this idea of retirement income styles. Mm -hmm. It was based on research that I did with Alex Merguia, where we were trying to understand better how people choose a retirement strategy. Cause we, we hear about a lot of different options and there's a lot of debate, really heated debate about like the best approach to building a retirement income strategy. And at the end of the day, I think really there can be multiple viable approaches. And so it's really important to figure out as an individual based on your preferences, what sort of approach works best for you. So that's been my other major project over the last couple of years. <laughs> There's a lot of personality tests all over the internet. You know, you can, you can figure out what animal you are on the Zodiac or what number you are <laughs> on some other test. You have the RISA matrix and there's a score that you can take, if I'm not mistaken, a test that you can take to figure out what your style is and maybe help point you in the right direction. Is that, is that right? That's that a, and yeah, calling it a personality test is pretty fitting. It's about your okay. retirement income personality. How do you want to yeah. source essential spending in retirement? And I think last time we discussed uh, maybe even your last book, the safety first approach to retirement planning, that is all behavioral finance. I mean, it, behavioral finance plays such a major role in our retirement journey. And I think that you master that in this book. And one of the things that is amazing is it goes so deep. And, and you know, we were talking about, if I'm not mistaken, I read a review of your book a few weeks back when I knew we were going to have this talk. And I think I even read a quote where you called it a thorny work, which I thought was pretty impressive. You, you said it's, we get deep into the weeds and maybe even uncover some of the thorns and what you, you may not even want to know about. But man, if you can ever master this, this is a personal finance book. And to be honest with you, if you write too many of these, Wade, they're not going to need people like me. So <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm hoping that, you know, if anything, we take some knowledge from it and give it to our clients. Sure. Sure. Yeah. A lot of my readers tend to be more of like do-it-yourselfers. And so of I course. hope for them, it is a complete instruction manual. But certainly uh, what we've learned, I mean, part of this retirement income styles as well as even if people are confident in their ability to solve their retirement problem for themselves. 
uh, they don't always want to devote the time and effort needed to do that. And so they may like to outsource some of that effort to a, a qualified financial advisor. And, and so that's an important consideration as well. Outstanding. Uh, so as we get into this book, I think that it's important for the reader, the listener to the show to know it's written with a lot of graphs and charts and numbers. But at the end of the day, you don't have to be financially literate to understand what you're giving. I mean, you break down the analytics of everything in every chapter. And then at the end of it, you say, hey, but here's what that means. This is kind of the, if you were reading it in layman's terms, here's what that means. And, and again, it's a do-it-yourself book. You could literally take this book. How did you do that? Because I know, I know a little bit about you. I know a little bit about your research. And you get so deep and you work with people who get you know, very, very deep into the weeds on the financial analytics. I think the white paper that was done about you know, bonds being perhaps something that we should phase out and, and, and a certain type of income product, which we will discuss, is maybe the alternative to recommend. That was a very deep paper. And, and that white paper took a lot of research. But in this book, I feel like you really came down to the reader's level. Was that challenging for you? Or is that just something you've always been able to do? I would say it is challenging and to try to strike that balance because, I mean, there's a million books about retirement these days, and so many of them are just fluff. They don't really go into any detail. They're just very general. And I really try to provide the necessary detail, but yeah, doing that in a way that not skipping any important details, but still explaining things in a straightforward manner. Yeah, it, it is a challenge. And so, yeah, you get the really analytical, a 10-year project. <laughs> a 10-year project, right. So you get the analytical side and the conceptual side, and it just all makes sense. That's outstanding. Um, you're also a, a, a family man. I know you got a, a, a wonderful family, and so that takes some of your time, no doubt, and uh, a lot of stuff going on in Texas back home. You're a professor still and, and the lead a professor of the RICP program there at the American College of Finance. Mm -hmm. uh, so you've just got, you got a lot of stuff going on. And, we, and again, appreciate your time on the show. So if you're okay, we'll just dump, just jump right in to, sure. uh, to this book. I mean, it's a, like I said, it's an all-inclusive book. How many chapters are in it? 13, 14 13. chapters? Uh -huh. 13 um, chapters. And so we'll, we'll just jump in on some of the highlights, some of the chapters that are definitely something you may want to, first of all, understand. And then, like you said, outsourcing some of these things may be necessary. Let's talk about this idea, which I didn't realize was a, a pretty big part of this 10-year project, of the income styles. Let's, let's talk a little bit about that. And, and, and if you will, just tell us a little bit about how you even thought. Maybe some people have personalities and we should better suit their uh, financial advice to their personality. Sure. Yeah. And that's really been part of like this 10 year process as well as when I first started learning about retirement income, I'd see these big disagreements. You can ask people basic questions and get completely opposite answers about like, is the 4% rule this conventional wisdom for retirement? Is that a safe strategy? Some people say, Oh, absolutely. Others say, no, not at all. It's a completely reckless strategy. Uh, Four percent rule being define that just so that people yeah. are listening oh, sure. and aren't familiar. The yeah, so that's a guideline research. about how much you can spend in retirement. It was developed back in 1994, and it says that just to give an example of it, if I had a, a million dollar investment portfolio, if I invested that with a 50 to 75 percent stock allocation, I could take out forty thousand dollars or four percent in year one of retirement, and then increase that spending amount with inflation each year. And my money should last for at least 30 years. And it's yeah. based on historical market returns. Which has been a guideline for decades. You know, I mean, <laughs> it, it, it's literally been deemed the 4% rule because it's such commonplace in our industry, in the retirement planning industry. And then you start to see that that is perhaps being something that is polarizing, maybe as polarizing as some of our political issues we have today. Oh yeah, yeah. There's, <laughs> if you spend much time on internet discussion boards, you'll see some very heated debates. <laughs> but it's even with financial service professionals as well. Yeah. It's really this speaks to retirement styles in large part because I, I talked for a long time about two different schools of thought for retirement, and I called them probability based and safety first, and that lives on as one of the what we found uh, as a primary factor explaining preferences. So if you're probability based you're fundamentally comfortable relying on the stock market to fund spending. And you believe 
historically stocks outperform bonds and you believe you can rely on that relationship to continue to fund your retirement. If you're safety first, when, at least when it comes to your essential spending, you really don't wanna to have to rely on the stock market. You'd rather have some sort of contractual protection behind what you're doing, mm-hmm. whether that means holding individual bonds, whether that means using a risk pooled product like an annuity, for example, something that can then allow you to have more certainty about your spending, not having to rely on the stock market. And, and those two approaches are competitive, like depending on how the stock market does, Sometimes the stock strategy works better, but other times the, the annuity strategy works better. It's not mm-hmm. somehow handicapped against the stock strategy. It, it really is a viable alternative. And so how do people feel about that? Yeah. And that was the one, one primary factor. The other one that we found, which I hadn't really thought much about, but it was this idea of optionality versus commitment. Some people want to keep their options open as much as possible to be able to respond to new situations or to completely redo their plan at some point. Other people feel more comfortable actually committing to a strategy. If I know that this strategy will solve for a lifetime need, then I'm comfortable going ahead and committing to that and being able to take that off my to-do list to some extent. And, and really the fascinating part for me was seeing how, how people, how their preferences are in these two sets of factors how that translates into the different retirement strategies that people have been debating about for the last, that really ever since the 4% rule was created back in 1994. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, William Binken had that research to prove his side. And then the other sides were perhaps opinionated. You've literally taken this, you know, are you probability approach, meaning you want to rely on the history of the stock market, or do you want a contractual guarantee from some sort of an insurance company or a, you know, a a blue chip company that's going to issue some sort of debt obligation to you and, and pay you a steady income from that. Um, What would you say, what would you say is, and well, let's actually, if it's okay with you, I've got your matrix from the book here, ready to be pulled up. If it's all right, I'll just share my screen with the, uh, with the listeners here. And if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you may want to find this on YouTube to find this matrix or better yet, just go buy the book. Uh, I think that I think that this kind of lays it out visually for someone. You, you can see my screen there, right? Dr. Mm-hmm. Dr. Oh, yeah. OK, mm-hmm. so, uh, you know, looking at these sentiments here, how did why and how did you lay these out? The safety first side. Here's our probability side, commitment oriented and then optionality oriented. And this looks a lot like if anyone's ever spent any time on, say, like a Morningstar, you know, risk reward chart or something, it's pretty conceptually understandable. I mean, that's genius work. You know, it's, it's four squares with words in it, but it's, it's intelligence. It took you 10 years to kind of boil it down to this. Tell me a little bit, if you don't mind, is there anything specifically around this that we need to um, understand? Or can you be in maybe two squares at once? Uh, sure. Well, you can be at the border and often spouses will be in two different squares and then it becomes a matter of finding a way to reconcile the, the differences. <laughs> but uh, right. yeah, this is chapter one of the retirement planning guidebook, because this is really what I view as step one of building a retirement plan is to think about what's your style and to just take a tour of the four main style strategy options. So if you're probability based and optionality oriented, that means you're comfortable relying on the market you want to keep your options open. That's the traditionally known as like a systematic withdrawal, or it's, it's using a diversified investment portfolio to fund retirement expenses. Mm-hmm. It's really the heart and soul of the 4% rule. We call that total return because people are relying on a total return investment portfolio to fund retirement expenses. Uh, going around the circle here in the bottom right, you have your probability-based and commitment-oriented. So you're comfortable with the market, but you like to commit to a strategy. And there's also some secondary characteristics that we had two primary factors four secondary factors. So when you're in this lower right-hand quadrant, you also tend to be more worried about outliving your money is another uh, important consideration here. We call this risk wrap. These are people who are comfortable with the market, but they want to put some sort of guardrail around that. Mm-hmm. And so really since the 1990s, the financial services world has created tools 
to help provide that. It's, it's like, for example, a variable annuity with a living benefit is a basic mm-hmm. example of this concept where you can still invest for upside, but you have downside protections. Right. You know, as you, yeah, as you go to the lower left, that's safety first and commitment. So now safety first contractual protections and a commitment orientation and these individuals are worried about living their money. And they really do have much more of a distribution mindset of they want to focus on having predictable income. So we call that income protection. And that's the, the traditional idea of like, sometimes it's called essential versus discretionary. Sometimes it's called flooring, like have a floor and upside. Right. But you build a, a protected lifetime income stream to cover your basic lifetime retirement expenses. And then you invest for more like growth and upside on top of that for discretionary mm-hmm. types of goals. Got it. And then, yeah, the upper left is safety first and optionality orientation. So you want contractual protections, but you want to keep your options open. And this describes to me the time segmentation or bucketing strategies, which is the other major strategy you'll hear about if you start reading online about different retirement strategies. This is the idea of like using bonds to cover short-term expenses and then giving yourself a window where if the stock market goes down, you have time to recover before your long-term buckets, your your stock or your growth-oriented buckets you start to tap into those to to cover, Mm -hmm. to replenish your short-term buckets. And so really then based on how you feel about probability-based safety first or an optionality versus commitment, it's not that this is going to necessarily be a a perfect match for everyone, but I think it provides a good starting point for the conversation of what basic type of retirement strategy do I want to use? And we recently were able to complete a nationally representative sample survey of 2,800 Americans to see how these strategies break down. So much of the media's focus is on total returns, right? but that really only resonates with about 33% of the population. Wow. Yeah. The other two thirds of the population is looking for something different and it's about 35% income protection, 17% time segmentation and 15% risk wrap. Hmm. So we think you really have to approach this in a more agnostic manner and try to just get a sense of step one of retirement. Absolutely. What type of strategy. I, I think we talk a lot about with our with our clients. We talk a lot about this idea of, you know, if you don't have a plan for income, you're not really retired. If you don't have if you don't have income in retirement, you're not retired. You're just unemployed. Like you're <laughs> literally just an unemployed individual. And unfortunately, you can't draw unemployment. <laughs> you know, you've just quit work and you don't even know where your income's coming from. And we see a lot of our clients that we're working with who do tend to be in that lower left quadrant who are looking for some sort of income protection. They're okay with a small commitment from time to time. They're not totally against the market in any stretch of the imagination, but we I have this idea of the safety income and growth approach where our income money is some have a little bit of contractual guarantee, or at least it's somewhat predictable, right? As predictable as we can have it in the market, whether that be dividends or coupon rates or uh, real estate investment trusts, but the other money is growth money. And, and so we, we talk a lot about, uh, you know, this idea that Tom Hegna was, I think maybe famous for coining and it's called paychecks and playchecks. Mm-hmm. As long as we have our paychecks secured, we really do have the ability to go out and, and seek some total return, but that's not any, at any stretch of the imagination, does that uh, determine how much income you're going to be getting? And so yeah, yeah, the paycheck makes, for essential and, and play check for discretionary. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly right. And so what you have done is you have, you have said in order to get where you're going, you've got to figure out where you are. And that's chapter one. Where are you? How can we help you? You know, are you, uh, in other words, you're about to buy an Atlas. Do you read Swahili or English? You know, like <laughs> which language are you going to hear the best? And if it's safety first and you try to talk to them about a market-based approach, uh, it's going to be really difficult to get them to buy into anything. If it's market-based approach and you're trying to get them to have a 10, 15, 20-year commitment, it may be tough to, to reach them. And Yeah, yeah, we like, we amazing. got more predictive, predictive analytics on. <laughs> so we just ask people, are you interested or do you have or do you plan to use an annuity for lifetime income? Yeah. And for the extreme total returns people, about 5% said yes. But in the more extreme income protection portion, 70% of people were saying yes. 
So that helps awesome. to confirm that the strategies coming out of this do align with. No doubt. And, and this matrix, if, if people are actually involved, whether it's a personal finance or in the industry, I think that this matrix alone will help us understand that there are at least four, and you said you had a couple subcategories too, but at least four major categories that a client could be falling in. And if as advisors, we're not giving the advice to them in a language they can understand, or at least a, an emotional delivery that they will appreciate, we have a hard time connecting with them. So this is outstanding. The, chapter one, you know, if it's for that alone, I think just reading that and understanding a little bit and then being able to take that RISA uh, matrix. Tell me, RISA, and I may have missed this, but that stands for RISA. What is that? Yeah, RISA, the Retirement Income Style Awareness. Style and awareness. my my co-author on that, Alex Marguia, he's he's his parents are from Cuba. He speaks Spanish, and and RISA means a smile or laughter. <laughs> Wonderful. <Spanish. laughs> How about that? Okay. Nice acronym. <laughs> nice acronym. So let's just uh, move to chapter two. This is retirement risk, which I believe, you know, you, you outline, if I'm not mistaken, three main risks that things start to fall into, or at least three that are pretty important. There's a ton of them, but three that I want to focus in on are longevity risk, market risk, and something you call spending shock. So, you know, let's talk a little bit about all three of them, but really take a deep dive on this idea of spending shock as a risk in retirement. Mm -hmm. Yep. So longevity risk is really the overarching risk of retirement. It is misnamed because it means living a long time. So it's a good thing. It's <laughs> living a long time. The, yeah. the financial implication though, is just every year of retirement is another year in my budget that I have to fund. And so the cost of my retirement grows with the length of retirement. And then longevity risk just means if I build a plan that works through, say, age 90, age 95, whatever the case may be, the risk is that I outlive my planning horizon and I outlive mm -hmm. my ability to fund my retirement spending needs throughout sure. my entire lifetime. And, and I think it's neat that longevity risk is one of the ones you really hit on because it, it is very, very important. Uh, longevity risk makes, you know, and Tom Hagno, once again, famous for kind of coining that. Longevity risk is not only a risk, it's a risk multiplier. You know, if, the longer you live, the more likely it is you'll run out of money. The longer you live, the more likely you'll see inflation. The longer you live, the more likely you'll see a, a bear market, you know, a, a 2008 type recession. This longer you live is a risk multiplier. Healthcare needs will be greater. Medicare planning could change. All of these things are based on how long you're going to live. And I think last time we talked, you were, you were mentioning to me, you know, Hey, if we knew you're going to die at 85 years old, well, that's simple. You know, how much money you have divided by the amount of years you have left. And there you go. They, that's a simple process and maybe throw a little bit of growth in there. Uh, but we just don't know. And so you begin to talk about this risk pooling idea, and we'll discuss that a little bit later in the show, but longevity risk, uh, you know, once you, once you realize that's on the table, things really start to get a little scary because you want to live long. But you don't want to run out of money. <laughs> so market risk, let's, let's move to that one. What do you, what do you see with market risk right now? I mean, uh, we are, we're recording this show on what is it? The 27th of April, uh, as it stands, we have a pretty decent day looking in the market, but we've just came off some really terrible days in the market. Yeah. It's been a bad past week or so. <laughs> just yeah, three weeks. Like the market's just been all over the place. So market risk. Let's hear it. Well, I, I think everyone you know, understands markets are volatile. Right. Sometimes they go up, sometimes they go down. The issue in retirement with market risk though, is that it gets amplified when you're saving for retirement, you can actually benefit from a market downturn if you're saving, because you can, what well, your new savings will buy more shares. You're getting to buy stocks and bonds at a discount. Mm -hmm. Problem is when you're retired and you're having to take distributions to fund a fixed expense. If the market's down, you have to sell more shares to meet that spending obligation. And that digs a hole for the portfolio so that even if the overall market recovers, the retiree's investment portfolio will not get to experience that full recovery because they've been selling assets to fund expenses. Right. And so that just amplifies what, what we know about market volatility, but we just need to understand that post-retirement, that volatility gets amplified by the act of spending from the uh, asset base. Mm -hmm. 
what's your biggest, I know what we would probably say as a firm at Artie Smothers Wealth Management, what, what would you say your biggest, um, if you had one thing to throw at market risk, what would that be for you? If you had one solution for market risk? Well, there, there's a lot of possible solutions, but the one thing that really doesn't work is to switch to cash or to like give up and, and just have a, this is what happened to Bill Bengen. Actually, it was just recently in the Wall Street Journal where he admitted this. A bond portfolio will not fund a 4% rule in retirement. It, he said in his original research, you, you should be 75% stocks in retirement and never less than 50% stocks. And that's hmm. something that's always held up in all his subsequent research. But just a week ago in the Wall Street Journal, he's saying, yeah, based on my advice, I should be 50, I, I want to be 55% stocks, 45% bonds, but I just can't handle it. And, and Bill Bengen went to 20% stocks, 10% bonds, and 70% cash. And wow. that is absolutely the worst way to try to yeah. manage this sequence of returns risk and this market volatility risk in retirement. Because if you're probability based, it means you're comfortable relying on the market. Uh -huh. And if you abandon the market after we're down now, like year to date at this point, I haven't checked the year to date numbers based on this past week, but we're past probably 10 to 15% losses so. at this point. Yeah. So, and so you're saying Bill Binken, I, that's interesting. I didn't realize that. Um, Bill Binken, the, the famous you know economist and researcher with the 4% rule essentially has abandoned his own advice and moved to cash just because of behavioral finance. It's yeah, all so about he's the, the creator of that total return style right. for retirement. And this Wall Street Journal article that interviewed him, it didn't mention the other styles. It just talked about, well, okay, the, the only thing you can do is manage retirement with investments. And if you panic, so be it. <laughs> yeah. It didn't really provide any alternative. But that's where there's a lot of other ways to manage the sequence of returns risk not abandoning the stock market necessarily, but or at least not having 70% of your assets in cash, maybe shifting some of that cash to a better performing type fixed income asset, whether that Perfect. is an annuity or whether that is a bond ladder, but, but something upside than cash. in any market performance upside with market performance up your cash should go up as well. Market performance is down. You should you should have some security in that. Uh, I, I love the idea of understanding, and not not that we need to pick on Bill Binken, because I mean, we see people do it all the time. You know, we have clients that will call in and say, "Are you sure we shouldn't be moving to cash?" But literally, I think you said thirty three percent of the people favor this total return investment. Yeah, only thirty three percent of people. It's it's what. Like this Wall Street Journal article was acting as though total return is the only option, but it only resonates with 33% of the population. Hmm. And, and based on what Bill Bengen was saying, even though he's the heart and soul of the 4% uh, rule in the total return quadrant, I, he, I don't, to my knowledge, he's not taken the RISA, but if he did, yeah. I'm guessing he may not be a total return. <laughs> True. That may not be a style. Which is nothing against him. You know, Hey, if, 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 if you know, just because you uh, have found this to be true, doesn't mean you have to uh, adopt it as your strategy. Cause like you said, many strategies could get you to the end result. And, <laughs> you know, we have, we have retirees who will walk in wait and they will say listen i don't care if my last check bounces like as long as i have money to to last me to my last day i'm fine and then you have clients who say no i want to leave all of my money to a beneficiary and i just want to live on the interest and so again got to figure out where you are and then to manage market risk i think whatever strategy you're on you know we had said if you had one thing to throw at it what would it be whatever strategy you're on rebalance rebalance if you rebalance the annual, as long as it's a tried and true strategy, you got to make sure you rebalance because things do get out of balance. And if you go for two or three years where the market has done really well and you all of a sudden now have a ballooned position in the equity part of your portfolio, even if you are total return and you haven't rebalanced to fixed income of some kind, uh, you could find yourself in really hot water whenever we see markets like we're seeing today, you know, the, for the last three months. So rebalancing is, is a way to maybe 
offset some market risk too. And, mm-hmm. and you talk about other options and, and ways to fix that in the books that you have written. So let's move to spending shock. Let's uh, spending shock. Introduce that concept for us. Well, so, I mean, a lot of people may not have a good sense of what their retirement budget is, but to some extent you can kind of figure out, okay, in a typical year, I'll spend about this amount per year. And and so that's going to be my retirement budget. Spending shocks are just things outside of your expected retirement budget that require additional expenditures that were not anticipated in that you may not have prepared for their, their surprises. It's just a surprise. Mm. You have to spend a lot more money than you expected. Could yeah. just be replacing a roof. It could be a big healthcare bill. The, the biggest spending shock for retirees is ultimately if they need long-term care, either to pay for in-home care or move to institutional living for long-term care. But it's, you could even, now inflation is ticking up. And if my expenses are linked to inflation and I was planning on a lower inflation rate, you could really say that that's a spending shock as well. It's just whenever you have to spend more than you were anticipating and budgeting for. What do you see the, the, the main spending shocks being? Do you have any statistical analysis or um, any kind of doc, documented data that, that shows what Americans are experiencing to be the biggest spending shock? Well, in retirement, it, it's definitely long-term care. Healthcare. It's going to yeah. be, not everyone uh, experiences a long-term care event. About half of the population may have to pay some money towards a long-term care event. For Others may experience something that we would call long-term care, but either it's just for a very short period or they, they do have a family member who just takes care of them so that they don't have to actually spend money on it. Yeah but about half of the population may need to have something budgeted for long-term care or otherwise have long-term care insurance. Wow. And at the extreme, like now with dementia and things or Alzheimer's disease, where in some cases people may spend 10 years in a nursing home with Alzheimer's, that would be like the most extreme form of the long-term mm-hmm. care shock that could lead to bills in excess of a million dollars. Yeah. Quickly million dollars quickly. We talk a lot about the probability of needing your homeowner's insurance and it's very low, you know, for total loss in your homeowners, you're looking at, you know, seven, 8% of the, of the America's population is going to need to use homeowner's insurance for a total loss on their house, automobile insurance, same way. Uh, You know, everyone's going to die, but you know, at the same time, that life insurance doesn't benefit you you would think that for something like long-term care, there was more notoriety about ways to fix this excessive need for income that retirees are going to have. The last time I read, I think it was in the 70s, that some about 70% of Americans who are retiring uh, and over the age of 65 stand a chance to live till they're 90, you know, 85, 90 years old. And and I'm I know for you as a as a student of the numbers, that is a very you know, I'm way too broad in those numbers, but what I'm getting at is a high probability of people who live to the age of 65 are going to live deep into life. And at some point in time, you're going to need someone to help you take care of, you know, the old saying, uh, twice a child, once an adult. And, and whenever it, that second time you got to pay somebody to take care of you and it becomes very expensive. So what would you say spending shock? Would you say for someone who is on the um, on the RISA side of safety first, time segmentation, in other words, the most conservative, do they have to, if they're going to commit to a plan, it seems as if they would have to account for things like this or else they're, they're going to have so much money tied up in contractual guarantees and commitment. It's going to be difficult for them to overcome spending shock. So while longevity may be taken care of and market risk may be taken care of, spending shock may be something that, that gets them. Is that, am I reading that kind of right? Not necessarily though, because it's, if you're in the income protection quadrant, it's, we also look at what are you concerned about? Uh-huh. Actually, these are people who are more concerned about having reserves to okay. cover these types of spending shocks. If your total returns, you just, it's kind of like, okay, the market's going to give me what I need. I don't, necessarily have to worry about outliving my money. I don't have to worry about spending shocks. It is the income protection that's more worried about it. 
But there's also more of a sense of... And therefore put a plan in place. Mm -hmm. Uh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, okay. But also there's a sense of true liquidity that you see with income protection, which is, well, simple, like technical liquidity is the fact that, okay, if I have a brokerage account, technically it's liquid. I can get my money out at any point. But true liquidity speaks to this idea in retirement. I can't view my money as liquid if I've earmarked it to cover something else. And so if I've earmarked this money to cover my future retirement budget, I can't really view it as liquid. And so then the income protection group, if they didn't have a commitment through an annuity and were having to rely on investments, they're more worried about outliving their money and so forth. They might have to earmark a lot more investment assets to meet the same lifetime spending goal than if they do just use an annuity and and then, okay, if I put this amount of money into the annuity, I've not earmarked that for my future budget. Now these other assets are truly liquid and I can use them as as reserves for unexpected expenses in retirement. And so it can actually give more confidence that you can go ahead and spend your money because you know you have reserves set aside to manage these types of spending shocks. True liquidity versus technical liquidity. Mm -hmm. I love it. I love it. And, and, and that is, again, back to the paychecks and playchecks bucketing system. Income is there. No need to worry about the income. The rest of this money is stuff that you can buy the camper with, that you can overcome the spending shock with, that you can join the country club with or see the world with. You can truly spend that money because you don't have to worry about it uh, being lost to the market, per se, for income purposes. You, you, you mentioned uh, a percentage. So I think boiling that down to the numbers, let's just use a million dollar account using the 4% rule and a total return base. You're talking about $40,000 a year that could be generated from that account and all $1 million, while it may be liquid in a brokerage account, if you don't keep it there, your 40,000 is not coming to you Uh, versus if you could carve off $700,000 of that money, theoretically, and produce the $40,000 of income, now you have $300,000 of true liquidity. And that is essentially what, (laughs) that's the idea behind what you're saying. I love Mm -hmm. it. So spending shock, I like that concept um, because it's something people, you know, we we don't think about it, which is why why it's a risk. Chapter four, you go into sustainable spending. So you have laid out these, concepts all the way throughout the book and then you get into sustainable spending give us a give us a real quick kind of reader's digest as we're getting into about 15 minutes or so 15 20 minutes left in the show what is a what is one thing that you would be able to bring to us and say sustainable spending obviously this is what it means and then this is how uh, you know if i were to retire let's just make it personal here for a minute how would how would wade fowl set up his retirement sustainable spending But chapter four is for people in the total returns and time segmentation quadrants to think about how much can I spend for my investments in retirement. It can also apply to the safety first strategies that income protection or risk wrap for discretionary spending. And then it's really just a matter of it's kind of uh, sustainable spending 101 is just the 4% rule. Now, I, I am concerned that that's not really applicable. And now Bill Bingen agrees based on the Wall Street Journal from right. mid-April 2022, that with inflation higher, with low interest rates, with high stock market valuations, we can't necessarily rely on the historical data in the way that we did to describe and define the 4% rule. But that, that's the starting point. And then it's just variations on a theme you can help manage the sequence risk if you're flexible with spending. So having a variable spending strategy, cutting spending after a market downturn is part of that investment strategy world of of ways to manage this risk. Time segmentation could be argued as a way to help manage this risk because I have these short-term buckets and it really depends on how specifically you're defining the process of allocating from the growth bucket to the income bucket. Yeah. But that can be another option there. And that, so that chapter is really just about the research that's been done about different strategies related to spending from an investment portfolio in retirement. Surviving the total return uh, risks that are inherent to the total return section, that 33% <laughs> of the population. If you go that route, just be aware that you're going to need to be able to set up sustainable spending habits. And 
so then I think either maybe before or or after uh, you can tell I, I should have again once I should have brought the book in here before or after that chapter you talk about risk pooling so tell me a little bit about that idea and why I've had enough conversation with you to to kind of believe I understand about how you would set up your retirement portfolio uh, but bonds you know, bond funds let's speak to to that specifically mm -hmm. and maybe the 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 solution to that which would be perhaps risk pooling. Yeah. Yeah. So my personal style is risk wrap. And if anyone listening, uh, page 15 of the retirement planning guidebook has a link so that you can take your retirement income style awareness and see what your style is. My personal yeah. style is risk wrap. And, and you can think about that. So there's three basic ways you can fund a, your retirement budget. The kind of starting point is just you use bonds. So I'm going to build a ladder of bonds. I have bonds maturing every year. If I want to plan for 30 years, I have this 30-year bond letter. And that's not going to support a lot of spending in that you're kind of constrained by bond interest rates. And bond interest rates are still low relative to historical averages. So you're not going to get a lot of spending that, that way. And so then you have two fundamental alternatives to spend more than bonds. The total return approach is invest in the stock market. Believe that stocks will outperform bonds and that'll let you spend more. The risk pooling approach the, is use risk pooling through an insurance company where they're going to invest that money in effectively like a bond portfolio as well. But me as an individual, if I'm worried I might live to 95, if I'm going to fund that with bonds, I have to set aside the full value of my age 95 spending. The insurance company gets to multiply that by the probability that any one person lives that long. And so for me, I have to assume with 100% chance I'm going to live to 95, the insurance company can say, well, only 15% of our customers will live to 95. And that reduces the cost of funding the lifetime income stream for any one consumer in their risk pool because we've pooled that risk together. And those who don't live as long, well, they didn't have as big of retirement expense to fund. Yeah. Those who live longer face a longer period of the budget they have to fund. And you get that subsidy from the risk pool that helps everyone to enjoy a higher standard of living or to be able to retire with less money because they're using risk pooling to fund their retirement rather than having to use bonds alone, or, I mean, if they are using stocks, but they're worried, well, what if stocks don't cooperate? Therefore, they're just having to set aside more with an investment approach than they would have to set aside with a risk pooling approach. And so that's, that's the big difference. So in all of your history and research in the industry, uh, all of your time that you've spent in the industry, the, the analytics that you've done, you believe that a viable retirement plan should include some sort of risk pooling, uh, some sort of an annuity-based investment option, at least if you were setting yours up, you feel confident that that would be how you would set it up? Yeah, since I'm risk wrap, I, yeah, that would be the, the approach I would yeah. take. That's where, at the end of the day, I'm agnostic. I, if people want to do the total return strategy, of course, fine. And I think it's appropriate for about a third of the population. But yeah, if, if somebody's not comfortable with that, then certainly the math is in favor of annuities as being just as an effective approach, if not more so than yeah. a pure investment approach. So absolutely for, sure. for the, those who are looking for something different, it's a completely viable option to think about an annuity as part of that. What about interest rates rising? Now I'm, I'm asking you from your perspective, interest rates rising, an existing retiree who has just retired, uh, the market is going in the wrong direction. Interest rates are rising. Inflation is on the rise. Uh, perfect storm opportunity, perhaps, for someone who's just retired. Interest rates rising. What does that do to that 40% or 25% that is supposed to be in fixed income if you're using bonds as your fixed income, bond funds specifically? Mm -hmm. Right. So it's important to understand if interest rates go up, there's going to be losses on bond mm -hmm. funds, that if you have to sell some of those bonds you may experience a loss. And the longer the maturity on those bonds, if you have like a long-term bond fund, mm -hmm. you could be looking at potentially significant losses that you usually think only apply to the stock market. Mm -hmm. Now, retirees 
are, they say they have an asset liability matching problem. They need to fund spending over their retirement. So if I hold a bond to maturity and interest rates go up, on paper, I would have losses. And if I sold the bond, I would experience right. a loss. But if I hold it to maturity, I get paid the face value. I mean, assuming the bond doesn't default, I get paid the face yeah. value that it promises. And I never had to realize that loss. And that's where structuring retirement more with holding individual bonds to maturity. And that's an annuity is doing the same thing. It's mm-hmm. you're receiving these coupon payments from the bond over time. It's quote unquote here uh, that yeah. you know what you're going to get on a particular date. You right. don't have to worry about that sort of capital loss that can be associated with rising interest rates. Now it is true. Had you waited like with an annuity, you could get a higher payout rate in the future because interest rates are higher. But at right. the same time, people are also living longer and that's reducing payout rates over time. Plus, what did you do in the meantime? If you had a bond fund, you have a capital loss on the bond fund. So you're not necessarily going to be better off by waiting. And if you have all that in cash, like the, the 70% cash that Bill Bingen has now, that's not yielding anything. And that's you're going to just be lagging behind inflation and so forth. And you don't have anything to show for it. You don't have any yield. You don't have any risk pooling mortality credit. Uh, you're just, you're looking at a, a much tougher situation in trying to manage inflation. So I think your white paper would suggest as well that, uh, you know, the 60-40, if that is the rule that you subscribe to for a balanced portfolio of 60-40, even if your total return investing is maybe your strategy, perhaps there are better fixed income alternatives out there than, than a simple, you know, used to be a bond fund, just throw it into a bond fund and, and allow it to uh, do what bonds do. Principal protection mm-hmm. may be something that bonds are now lacking. And if we don't see yields increase, we, we could see the bond be a, uh, you know, a, a maybe not as viable of an option in a retiree's portfolio at least from our perspective. And, and I know that I've read a lot about uh, your research that would probably share the same sentiment there. Let's talk about tax planning. Tax planning uh, is chapter 10 in your book. Longest chapter. No, matter, no longest chapter, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, you're trying to explain the tax code, which is you know thicker than the Bible. Um, and so taxes are extremely important. It's not even about as how much money you can make. It's about how much money you can keep whenever it comes to retiring. No matter where you are on the RISA matrix, you have to deal with taxes. Uh, Tell us a little bit about just, if you can, again, Reader's Digest version of chapter 10, three or four things that we need to be wary of and uh, be aware of. And you're, you're writing this chapter basically in the middle of, or probably writing, you were probably writing a little bit of it as we were announcing the Trump tax cuts, which are set to sunset in 26, uh, if nothing changes. So <laughs> tell us a little bit about the tax environment that, that a retiree faces right now. Yeah, oh, sure. Yeah, it, so that's all in there. I was actually writing it when we were hearing a lot of proposals about major changes to the tax code that never happened, but I was very nervous. Like as soon as I published the book, <laughs> we'd oh, have man. an entirely new tax system yeah. on our hands. Yeah. Three yeah. more years to read the tax code and then you can write the, the, the guide. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I walked through the whole process of thinking about, so the U.S. has a progressive tax system, which is just the higher your income, the higher the effective tax rate you're going to pay. There's increases in marginal tax rates. You have higher tax rates as you move up to higher tax brackets. And so that provides flexibility because that's on an annual basis to manage this, that if you have low income in a particular year, maybe you want to do a Roth conversion. Maybe you want to realize some long-term capital gains to pay taxes on those. And with long-term capital gains, you even have a 0% tax bracket that can get a couple up to close to $100,000 of income. And so to think about, we all have to pay taxes but let's try to pay taxes at the lowest possible rate so that we can project our assets out for longer or Mm. provide more of a legacy if we don't end up spending all the money, but have more of it go to expenses and legacy and less of it go to the the tax bill. And this is just about, it's not, I mean, we got to pay taxes, 
but we have some flexibility about when we pay taxes. Mm-hmm. And so then let's pay taxes like when we can do it at a lower rate than having to do it at a higher rate. And this yeah. really like for middle-class Americans, the way social security benefits are taxed is one of the most complicated things you, you could ever imagine. <laughs> it took me a long yeah. time to program that in, but being able <laughs> to control that is a huge part of this tax planning. Say I'm retired in my 60s and say I've read chapter five of the retirement planning guidebook and kind of the case where the case was made that at least the high earner and the couple should delay social security to age 70. Mm-hmm. I now have a, a window where I may have five or 10 year period where I don't have a, a salary. I don't have social security benefits. I may be able to do Roth conversions and get a lot of my IRA moved over to a Roth IRA. And then once social security begins, being able to pay taxes on less of my social security benefits. Mm -hmm. And then after required minimum distributions begin, not having that have such a big impact because this is, there's the social security tax torpedo is this idea right now in 2026, it'll go up to 25%. But right now I may think I'm in the 22% federal income tax bracket, but I generate, I take another dollar out of my IRA that's taxed at 22%. If I'm in the social security tax torpedo range, that pushes a dollar of my social security benefit in to be taxed at 85%. So that's now putting me at I'm paying 22% on $1.85, or I'm yeah. now in the 40.7% tax bracket. Plus, maybe I had a, another dollar of long-term capital gains that's stacked on top of my ordinary income, and that's pushing that, long, that dollar of long-term capital gains from the 0% bracket into the 15% bracket. I'm now, I thought I was in the 22% federal income tax bracket, but taking $1 out of my IRA is causing me to have to pay a 55.7% well, pay 55.7 cents of that dollar in federal income tax. Yeah. And that's where being cognizant of that and looking for ways to plan around that can have a dramatic, huge impact on the sustainability of a retirement plan. Huge, huge impact. Cause you know, you're, you're essentially in a partnership with the IRS when you have your Qualified money, 401k, 457, mm-hmm. alphabet soup of retirement plans, right? The IRAs, the Roth, the Roth IRA is a safe haven for you that uh, allows you to buy out the partnership with, with the IRS a little bit sooner, especially with our tax bill that we're working on, working under now. Uh, you know, even if we just wait two, four more years, we're going to definitely see tax increases, the only way that a Roth IRA perhaps doesn't make sense is if you plan on your tax bracket to go down later in time. And so, um, you know, with the, with the administration changes that we see in the next 20 years, I mean, and, and social obligations, uh, a lot of these social programs, if you will, uh, we're going to have to pay for that if you believe in basic economic principles. Uh, there are, I guess, theories that support no need to pay for our debt and that, you know, the, the new, the modern monetary theory, uh, necessarily subscribe to that myself, but I'm aware of it. And if that holds true, maybe we don't see taxes increase, but, but everything else points to increasing taxes or at least some sort of need to increase the revenue of the United States and taxes are one of those that Mm-hmm. But, be, but again, uh, the point it too is, yes, tax rates might go up in the future, but even if they don't, this social matter. security tax torpedo, the, this, what I was talking about with long-term capital gains, yeah. uh, Medicare premium, this is for people who have more money. It's not, you don't right. have the social security tax torpedo and have to pay higher Medicare premiums, but that right. becomes another issue at higher income levels. So you may surcharge. Yeah. Paying higher taxes than you, even without any changes to the current tax code you may be paying a higher tax rate than you thought in retirement. And, and that's where this planning comes in helpful. So if someone is uh, four years from retirement and they're making $300,000 a year, should they even consider tax planning at this point because of, uh, you know, the, the, the Medicare surcharge that they may be facing? I mean, mm-hmm. is that something that, okay. So, so even a higher income individual should still be looking at doing some tax planning in the year's, prior to right, right. taking Medicare. 
Because another issue too is just the SECURE Act that passed in 2019 was kind of a hidden tax increase on giving someone an IRA, like <laughs> your beneficiaries yeah. of your IRA, they used to be able to do a lifetime stretch. Now right. they have a 10 year window to take all that money out. And if your adult children are the beneficiaries of your IRA, they might be in their peak earnings years. And so right. they may be paying a high marginal tax rate on those distributions. And then your tax planning problem is, well, are my tax rates in my retirement higher or lower than my adult beneficiary children who are gonna receive the IRA as an inheritance when they have that 10 year window to right. take those distributions? Makes perfect sense. And uh, just, it's all about at that point, if, if your goal is to especially leave that IRA, uh, let's see if we can get it over to them as, as tax efficiently as possible. Right, right. Because a Roth IRA has the same 10-year window to take out the distributions, mm -hmm. but the difference is those beneficiaries don't have to pay any tax on that money. Right. Outstanding. Outstanding. Uh, so, you know, by no means is this an exhaustive review of the book, but it is one that if you are planning on retiring, whether you're working with an advisor or not, I think it's a wise decision to go ahead and, and just pull up this, the retirement planning guide. Uh, wait, is it on Audible? Is it, a, is it an audio version yet? Not this year. And that okay. was primarily because of my concern about tax reform. It's Got expensive it. to create an Audible version. It and is. I was just so worried as soon as I did that, we'd have new tax legislation. But everything changes, I'm, yeah. When I update the book for 2023, I am anticipating creating an okay. Audible version at that time. Excellent. So, uh, you know, I wouldn't call it an easy read, but it's an understandable read and it is, uh, it's not heavy. It's not, it's not super heavy in finance jargon. So I am a big proponent of that. I know on our radio show, our podcast, our YouTube, everything we do, we try our best to boil things down to where someone can understand it. And you have, uh, you've done a very good job of that inside of this book. Again, I think that if you're considering retirement in the next four to five years, go check this book out, buy it on Amazon. Uh, as it was, you know, should they, should they send you an email and let you know they're buying it or <laughs> I'm just kidding. Wait, <laughs> listen, you're, I'm sure that you have uh, done very well with this book. I'll tell you this. I know that if someone picks this book up and takes it on themselves to educate themselves, they're going to be better. Even if they do outsource some of this, they're going to be better prepared to have the right questions. Cause we, we talk to clients that come in and they're like, you know, I just don't even really know what questions to ask. So tell me the question to ask. So you can tell me the answer. And if anything, this book will start to uh, get you thinking more in line of what questions to be asking, yeah. what, what risk to be aware of. And it's been doing well. Like if you search for retirement or retirement planning on Amazon, it's been the first organic uh, term that shows up or the first book that shows up. There are now Amazon has so many ads, so there may be sponsored books, but when you get to the first book on their list, that's not sponsored for sure. Uh, it's, it's showing up first for both the terms retirement and retirement planning. So it should be Absolutely. pretty good to find. Absolutely. So what we're going to do is we're actually going to, um, uh, we're going to say for the first 10 people that will shoot us an email and review the show, uh, we're going to go ahead and send you one of those books. Just if you are in that five-year window of needing to retire soon and you want to get a little bit more educated on that, just uh, shoot us an email. We'll include that information in the podcast and make sure that you get a, uh, get a copy of this book because it is an amazing handbook. And uh, once again, Wade, man, thanks so much for coming on. You have got a busy schedule and you've carved out a good hour for us, a little bit over an hour. And we greatly appreciate your time. Is there anything else going off, uh, you know, kind of signing off on this show? Is there anything else specifically that you would hit in those 13 chapters? We touched on four or five of them. Anything else that we've left out that needs to be uh, pay attention to this? And you can take as much time as you need or no time. Oh, sure. I mean, the other topics from some of the chapters we didn't have time to cover, mm -hmm. we talk about budgeting for retirement and then how to calculate your funded ratio, which is just, do you have enough assets to meet all your spending obligations in retirement? Also social security, we mentioned briefly, but then Medicare and health insurance prior to age 65, Medicare post mm -hmm. or once you're eligible for Medicare, long-term care planning, uh, retirement housing, 
and thinking about where you want to live in retirement. Um, if you do want to live in the home, your home for the long term, whether a reverse mortgage might be an option to help as a funding mechanism for retirement, uh, incapacity and estate planning. So getting all your financial documents together, like helping your beneficiaries so that if something does happen to you, either incapacity or death, that they don't just have an absolute mess to deal with. They have a very nicely organized set of documents and no action mm. steps of what they need to do. Having your financial documents in order between like living trusts and estate, uh, I'm sorry, a will, mm-hmm. uh, healthcare directives and so forth. Uh, estate planning is part of that. Like how do I also think about passing assets to the next generation? Then uh, the non-financial aspects of retirement. So just having purpose and passion, having a plan for how you're going to fill your days. And then the last chapter tries to put that all together in in a series of steps of what to do at each important step along the way as you're getting closer to retirement, when you're at retirement, and then ongoing monitoring and adjustments throughout retirement. And those are probably two of the best chapters. Uh, those, Those last couple chapters of just kind of putting it all together and living with purpose, we, we do in our podcast, we will have guests on who teach you how to plan a little better, which is hopefully what this is doing, how to save a little better or how to live happy. And that's our motto. So saving money. So save money, plan well and live happy. And this has this book pretty much has it all. You know, we talk about budgeting, help you save a little bit, planning all throughout the book and then living happy and making sure you're finding purpose, uh, making sure that you know what your purpose is here mm-hmm. on this earth. And that is amazing. Uh, you mentioned long-term care. I mean, we could do an hour long podcast on that and the options that are there, but I would say that you've got to make sure you're planning for something in long-term care. You got to have a plan for long-term care because it is very expensive. And uh, like we said, longevity risk is a multiplier. So if we don't address that, uh, we could see things go south at the wrong time, which is, you know, the years where we can't fix it. That was those later years. Uh, Wade, again, thank you. And uh, we will, we'll definitely be pushing people to the book. It, it's one of a kind, uh, one of a kind for what's out there for sure. And I know that you have poured a lot of your sweat, blood, sweat, and tears into this and time. Uh, you have, you have no doubt seen stresses that have come from this and you know, the instant that you start to, you said, write the tax, the tax code starts to, starts to change on you when you're writing the tax <laughs> chapter. And there will be, I'm confident, more editions of this particular book. But man, if somebody can pick this up today, they'll be better prepared for retirement. So thank you for your work. Thank you for your time. And uh, we will, we'll definitely sure. talk again on your, maybe your next book. Yeah, thank you. All right, Wade. Thank you, sir. Investment advisory services offered through AE Wealth Management, LLC. AE Wealth Management and RD Smothers Wealth Management are not affiliated entities. Investing involves risk, including the potential loss of principal. Insurance guarantees are backed by the financial strength and claims paying abilities of the issuing carrier. This show is intended for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be used as a sole basis for financial decisions, nor should it be construed as advice designed to meet the particular needs of an individual situation. RD Smothers is not permitted to offer, and no statement made during the show shall constitute tax or legal advice. Our firm is not affiliated with or endorsed by the U.S. government or any governmental agency. The information and opinions contained herein provided by third parties have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed by RD Smothers Wealth Management. Thank you.